Well, I think I've, uh, I think I've experienced about 400 weddings, give or take two. Um, I worked for three years as a cater waiter uh, in LA doing weddings um, at, a, at a place in Malibu called Calamigos Ranch. And what I loved best about that job was that about three times a week, I got to eat wedding cake. And, uh, and so just so you know, I am a professional wedding cake cutter, which it takes some skill. So if you ever need me to do that, I can be more than just your pastor. Um, I was excellent at it. And uh, uh, one of the other perks of that job was usually two or three times a week, I was able to bring home a beautiful flower arrangement to my wife, Kelly, which kept me out of the trouble a lot. And, uh, and so that was a great perk. The not-so-great perks of this job was that I was constantly having to refill people's coffee to Nellie's. Uh, it's getting hot in here. Um, that was constantly playing at every wedding I did during this period. And I tried to take on smoking just so that I could get the smoke breaks, which, kids, smoking's awful. Don't do it. Your body's a temple. But that is the only way I felt like I could get a break when I was doing this job. And so I've been at lots of weddings. And now as a pastor... I get to officiate weddings, and that's been really kind of cool. I've been able to experience weddings in so many different ways, as a cater waiter, as a pastor, uh, as just someone there who's witnessing the wedding, as a groomsman, and then, of course, my favorite, as the groom. Weddings are a big deal to God because marriage is a big deal to God. In fact, the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. The Bible begins in Genesis with God presenting Eve to Adam and declaring, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two of them shall be united and become one flesh. And then the Bible ends in Revelation with the wedding supper of the Lamb. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So marriage is a big deal to God, but maybe not in the ways that you think. So my hope is today, as we, as we look at what God had in mind when he thought up marriage, we would see in marriage what it is that we're made for. Now, I know I probably just lost some of you. Um, a sermon on marriage might not be what you want to hear, or maybe you even think you don't need to hear it. Maybe you're single, and you love being single, and you want to stay single. You're like the Apostle Paul, and you think that single living is the better life. And, and if you want to kind of see Paul outline that view, he talks about it a lot in 1 Corinthians 7. But it's worth noting that even Paul, who seemed to have no desire to be married, spent a lot of time talking about marriage. In fact, he writes a beautiful and often wrongly preached passage on marriage in Ephesians 5 where he talks about the wife submitting to her husband and the husband giving up his life for his wife. But then he says, I'm not really talking about marriage, though. I'm talking about Christ and the church. So if you're like Paul, you want to be single, my prayer for you as we look at marriage is that you would see something important about God's heart and you would respond to him. Or maybe you're single and you really, really want to be married. And a sermon on marriage just reminds you of unfulfilled desires. My prayer for you as we look at marriage as God designed it is that your unfulfilled desires would be shaped into a hopefulness for what is holy and actually worthy of your desire. Or maybe your marriage is falling apart. Or maybe not even just that. Maybe your marriage is just boring and you just want out. 
you're gonna hate this sermon. Because my prayer for you as we look at marriage is that you will see that God is doing something so much bigger than your marriage and you gotta stay. Or maybe you've already left or your spouse has left and you're divorced and already right now you're feeling some shame. Just the mention of this topic makes you feel singled out. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah 54, four, where God is talking to his children and he's talking to his children who have gone away that he'd rather them not have gone. But then he says this to them with great tenderness. Do not be afraid. You will not suffer shame. Do not hear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember it no more. What grace. If you are divorced, my prayer for you as we look at marriage would be you would encounter the God who can free you from all shame. And that's not to say that God doesn't hate divorce, he does. He says very clearly in Malachi 2.16, as well as other places in the Bible, that he absolutely hates divorce. He hates what divorce does to a person's heart and to their family and to the body of Christ. God hates divorce like divorced people hate divorce. But God is not about shaming. Rather, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And all things means all things, including your divorce. Or maybe you're a widow or a widower. And I imagine looking at marriage brings about some sadness for you. I, I imagine that it would if I ever lost Kelly. And so my prayer for you as we look at marriage is that you would encounter what the psalmist encountered when he said, the Lord is near the brokenhearted, but that he wouldn't just experience that, you would experience more than that. You would experience a longing that would ignite in you a boldness to proclaim what the apostle Paul claimed, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Or maybe you're gay. Maybe you're part of the LGBT community and another sermon on biblical marriage is gonna make you feel condemned or maybe even worse, feel unseen and uncared for. My guess is you're already right now are bracing for me to tell you that you're a sinner. So let's just get it over with. You're a sinner. So am I. And so are all the people who would, who would accuse me of being soft on sin if I didn't tell you that you were a sinner. Big whoop. Join the club. The most basic first step to becoming a Christian is to see yourself as a sinner. Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of the gospel is that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. We are saved by Jesus Christ's death on the cross for all our sins, all of our sins. That includes the sins that we don't know about. That includes the sins that we don't acknowledge as sins. That includes the sins that we keep doing. Listen, either I'm saved by Christ alone and what he did alone, or I'm not saved. And the same goes for you. Every single one of us is broken sexually, and that affects how we view marriage. So now back to my gay brothers and sisters. Today, we're going to examine what we were made for and how God designed marriage. And from his word... It is clear that he created marriage to unite two sexually different persons into one flesh. And that picture of marriage is consistent throughout the entire Bible. I can't offer any other way to read it in good conscience, and I've tried. 
I have tried desperately to read it different ways. I would love to affirm gay marriage as being a biblical marriage, but I can't. So what does that mean for you? Well, my prayer is that you would stay. Now, you might land somewhere different than the view I just told you, that that marriage, biblical marriage, unites two sexually different persons into one flesh, which is the view the leadership of this church has taken. But I hope you'll stay. We need you here as part of this family. You make us more Christ-like, and I hope we make you more Christ-like. And if I've offended you, or, or if anything I say in the sermon offends you, please grab a cup of coffee with me. Don't just leave. Let's have a conversation. Because I'm telling you, I am, I am willing and I have been asking God to continue to make me open to whatever it is he really is saying. And I'm just asking that you would do the same. So have I left anyone out? A married, uh, happy, happily married people. Maybe, maybe you have a perfect marriage. You are, you are in a good marriage. Well, my guess is if you think that, uh, you might need this sermon more than anyone else. So my prayer for you is that you would realize that. So now, y'all ready to hear this sermon? It's gonna be great. Let's look at our text for today, which is Genesis 2, starting in verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is God's word. So we're gonna look at four things that this text teaches us about God's design for marriage and what we were made for, and then I'm gonna tell you a story. So four, four very quick points and then a story. First point, in marriage, God made us for sex, not just without shame, but to cover shame. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. First time I ever saw a naked woman, I was eight. And it was, uh, it was a magazine hidden in the bushes of my elementary school. From that moment on, my sexuality, my sex life, and my marriage have carried around a sense of shame. Sex and shame became so intertwined with one another that at times it's hard for me to distinguish the two. But God designed sex and marriage to be free from shame. Sex and marriage was designed to make you feel the most alive, in fact. It was designed to make you feel the most free. It was designed to make you feel the most loved. Is that how you feel during sex? And this question goes for those of us who are married and and those of us who aren't married and are having sex. And my guess is the majority of us, whether we're married or not, would say, no, not really. Why? 
because sex and shame have become so intertwined because every single one of us is sexually broken. And when two sexually broken people engage in sex, sex can be the loneliest experience. But in marriage, God made us for sex, not just without shame, but to cover our shame. In marriage, two sexually broken people can engage in sex and actually free one another from shame. I often apologize to teenage couples who come to see me because they, they're feeling guilty that they've gone too far. You know, they, they're not quite sure, but they think they are, and so they want to come, and they want to, like, do confession or, or penance or whatever, and, and they want to ask me, like, all right, well, I did this, and, and this is what I, what I think my parents say I can't do, and this is what I think Christian culture tells me I can't do, and, 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 and just can you just tell me where the line is? And, and as soon as they ask the line question, I interrupt them, and I just apologize, I just apologize that, that they have been a part of a Christian community that has painted such an anemic picture of what God intended marriage and sex to be. We've given them such a shallow vision and purpose for it that it almost seems laughable that we would tell them to protect its purity. See, the picture of marriage and sex that God intended is within a covenant, a covenant that says it's now safe to show me everything, every scar, every bruise, every bit of filth, stand before me naked with all your shame and know that I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying even if it hurts me. Not only that, I, I'm not only just staying, but I will cover your shame even if it gets me dirty. And not only that, after seeing everything, I'm still gonna want you. I desire every bit of you and I look forward to wanting you for the rest of my life. If your vision for your sex life is anything less than that, then it's less than what God has for you. In marriage, God made us for sex, not just without shame, but as a way to cover our shame. Point two, in marriage, God made us dependent, not needy. And this really we talked about last week. Um, and if you missed last week, you should go back and listen to it because it's really foundational for everything we're gonna be talking about over the next several weeks. But in marriage, God made us dependent, not needy. When God brings Eve to Adam, he explodes into song. At the sight of the first naked woman, the first love song is written. Adam can't help uh, but, but, but rejoice. Verse 23, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Now I know sin hasn't entered the story yet. Sin doesn't enter the story until Genesis 3. But as I studied and read this first love song, I couldn't help but see the spark, the potentiality, sin crouching at the door of Adam's heart. Because essentially what Adam is singing is, at last, this thing that I've been looking for all of my life is here. Now, I know some of you are thinking, all right, dude, come on, calm down. You haven't been alive that long. Like all of your life, you've been waiting for this. I've been waiting 45 years for a spouse. Like, come on, man, man up. But to be fair to Adam, Adam did have to go through the process of naming all the animals before God brought Eve to him, <laughs> right? Which if we take literally, I don't think can be done in a single day. Genesis 2.20, it says, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a suitable helper fit for him. So he had to name the rhinoceroses and the gnats and the cats. Take that back. Cats came after the fall. Uh, but that, yeah, that's the thing I'm going to get emails about. Um, 
And it wasn't until every living creature had been given a name and Adam still found himself lonely that God made Eve. And when he did, Adam sinks at last. In you, I finally have found the thing I've been looking for all of my life, literally. Now, there's something so true about this statement, and we'll address that in point three, but there's also something very dangerous about it. John Newton, who wrote the the hymn that we all love, Amazing Grace, was also a great pastor. He was a good preacher, but he was a great pastor. And in pastoring newlyweds, Newton would often say to them, you may think your biggest problem, spiritually speaking, is the prospect of having a bad marriage. But every bit as big a spiritual danger is the prospect of having a really good marriage. In one of Newton's letters to a young newlywed couple, he wrote this, permit me to say to both of you this in regards to marriage, beware of idolatry. And he went on to talk about how the biggest idolatry in his own life, the place where he struggled the most in his walk with Jesus has been in regards to his wife and his marriage. He says, there is something so powerful about marriage, something so fulfilling about marriage that unless you deliberately stop it, you will look to your spouse to give you the things that only God can give you. You will look to your spouse's love, to your spouse's respect, to your spouse's affirmation, to give you a sense of worth and dignity and value. All those things that we saw last week can only come from God. A good marriage, a great marriage, is a poor and a dangerous substitute for God. John Newton ended his letter to the newlywed couple with a single prayer for them. Oh Lord, save us from the wonderfulness of marriage. Now, am I suggesting to you if you love your spouse a lot, you should love them less? Of course not. In fact, C.S. Lewis says it is impossible to love any human being too much. You may love him or her too much in proportion to your love for God, but it is the smallness of your love for God, not the greatness of your love for that person that constitutes the inordinacy. So when Adam sings, at last, I have found what I've been looking for all my life, I can't help but see just that tiny spark, that tiny potentiality, that, that tiny bit of sin crouching at his heart. Marriage will strangle us unless we love God more than our marriage. We were made to be dependent on others, especially our spouse, but not needy. Our neediness can only be met in God. So in marriage, we see we were made to be dependent, but not needy. Point three. In marriage, we were made to stay. Now, if he's hitting you, if you're being abused, you should leave. You should get safe. And maybe you've heard from a Christian that if that's what's happening to you, it's part of God's plan and you should just trust him. No, it's not part of God's plan and you should not trust them. A physically abusive marriage is not a biblical marriage. But in God's original design for marriage, we were made to stay, even when it gets really hard, especially when it gets really hard. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And this word helper in the Hebrew is the word azer, which is normally used to refer to military reinforcements. So let's say you're a small army and you're about to be defeated. And then all of a sudden in comes the reinforcements. That's the azer. That's the helper. In fact, several times God uses that term for himself. 
He says, you are about to be destroyed, but I'm the helper who comes in to save you. So now, how does that word show us in marriage we were made to say? That word that's a military word, that word that's a strong word, that word that's a divine word, that word that God chooses to describe what he had in mind when he thought up woman. How does that tell us that you and I were designed to stay? Well, without the helper, we're doomed. We'll be destroyed. We're going to lose the battle. Without the helper, we won't be able to see ourselves or our sin or our need to be rescued. Now, this principle extends well beyond the marriage relationship. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, that doesn't just mean he made us for a marriage relationship, but for relationship which can include friendship and family and neighbor. So what I'm about to say applies to all relationships, but it is essential inside the marriage relationship. In marriage, God graciously gives us someone to fight for us. In almost every wedding ceremony that I perform, I look at the couple and I tell them, start now praying every day that you would see your spouse the way God sees him or her that he would give you a picture of what he had in mind when he thought them up and then be bold enough to fight for your spouse to believe that. And then I, and then I quote Ephesians 4.15, which says, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is our head, that is Christ. You see, marriage is a gift because it's a great sanctifier. I'm so thankful that I married Kelly when we were young, partly because if we were any older, she would know exactly what she was getting into, but, but also because I see the ways in which God has transformed us through us. I look at us now and I see we are so much more like Jesus than we were before we were married. And sure, if we had waited a little bit, if we had waited until we figured ourselves out a little more, if we had waited till later in life, there would be less scars we would have from each other. But we would end up just having scars from others who didn't vow their love to us. God giving man a helper, an azer, means he designed us to have a fighter. He designed woman to be a fighter. We are trained to be consumers. Consumers do a cost-benefit analysis all the time. We are always doing that. We're constantly doing that in our heads without even thinking about it. We want a product that satisfies. We want a product that provides for our needs. We don't want a product that fights back. And if, if we can get a product that we can customize, that's even better. So if you're in a marriage and you're thinking, this just can't be right. Marriage is bliss. Other married couples seem happier than us. Why do we have so many confrontations? Our marriage should just end. No, it shouldn't. Your marriage is just as it should be. Now, maybe you need to learn to fight in a kinder, gentler, more self-sacrificing way. But without those confrontations, without the fighting, you'll never become who God had in mind when he thought you up. See, when God thought up marriage, when he created woman as a fighter, as an azer, as the helper, it wasn't so much to bring confrontation into the marriage, but it was to bring us into confrontation with ourselves, to be able to see our own sins, to be able to see the places that we're blind to, to be able to see the places where we need to change. And of course, this isn't gender specific. This goes both ways. Marriage is the great sanctifier if you stay. Last point. And this will be really quick. Point four, and then we'll get to the story. In marriage, we are made to see the humility of God. 
Going back to verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, up until this point, everything God has said, everything God has created, he has said is good. And then God says, it's not good for man to just have me. That doesn't, I mean, that, that doesn't make sense to me as I think about it because I, I've been told my whole life that all you need is God. That, that, that as long as you have God, you'll be fine. But God says, no. Could God have made us to only need him? Yes, but he didn't. And because he didn't, that is the most humble act you can imagine. That is the most unself-centered act you can imagine. God made us for each other, not just for him. Do you see how other-oriented our God is? This is a God like no other God in any religion. Marriage invites us to see the humility of God, a God who designed us to be dependent on others and not just him. Okay, so here's the story. It also comes from Genesis, and it's found in the 29th chapter. It's the story of Jacob and his two wives, Leah and Rachel. Now, Jacob had a grandfather named Abraham. One day, God came to Abraham, and he said to Abraham, do you see all the misery in the world? Do you see all the brokenness and the cruelty and the injustice? Do you see the death and disease? I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to heal it. I'm going to redeem it all, and I'm going to do it through your family. One of your descendants will be the Messiah. You will have many children, but in every generation, one child will be the messianic seed. One will be the bearer of the messianic strand. And so from Abraham, we have his son Isaac. Isaac was the messianic seed. And then from Isaac, we have Jacob. And although Jacob was the younger son of Isaac, he was the messianic seed. And many of you know the story of, of Jacob uh, deceiving his father when his father was about to die and stealing the, the birthright from his older brother Esau. Um, so, so that's just happened. And now to get to the story that I want to share today, Esau, uh, Jacob is on the run. He's running for his life because his brother's going to kill him. And he runs to a faraway land where he moves in with his mother's relatives, with his uncle Laban. Jacob was hired by his uncle Laban to be a shepherd. And in return for that labor, Jacob said, could I marry your daughter, Rachel? Rachel was the youngest daughter of Laban. She was beautiful. She was stunning. But there was a problem. See, Laban had an older daughter, Leah, and she was ugly, really ugly. And Laban knew that he'd never be able to marry her off. Laban sees how Jacob looks at his daughter, Rachel, and he realizes this guy will do anything for Rachel. So Laban offers Rachel, his daughter, to Jacob if Jacob agrees to work for him for seven years. So he works for him for seven years, and after seven years, it's the wedding night. And I'm guessing that Laban probably got Jacob drunk, and Jacob was just so excited. I'm sure Jacob was thinking as mine, now I will have Rachel. Finally, I will get what I've always been looking for. But instead of sending Rachel into the darkened tent where the marriage bed is all set, Laban sends in his daughter Leah, heavily veiled, to cover her ugliness. The next morning, when the light shone bright, Jacob saw Leah. And instead of moving towards her, he was distraught. So Leah's first sexual experience inflicted great shame on her. Jacob goes to his uncle Laban and says, how could you do this to me? Why have you done this to me? 
And Laban responds, well, it's custom. I can't marry my, my younger daughter off before I marry my older daughter off. But listen, you can have Rachel too. Just work another seven years for me and then you can marry her. And Jacob says, okay, Rachel is worth it to me. Now, I know this story goes against so many of our modern day sensibilities, but this is how the ancient world operated. The Bible was written at a time when women were seen as property, as bargaining chips. They really had no value. But if you'll stick with me, in this story, we see that the Bible actually transcends the cultural context in which it was written. Because although it's a human book, it's also a God-inspired book. So let's put ourselves in Leah's shoes. Leah is thrown into a marriage that was really a living hell. She was married to a man who did not love her. And some of you know that hell. But not only that, she was put into a marriage with someone that she did love, her sister. I mean, this, this, is, this is total hell. Her daily life was hell. And on top of that, Jacob continues to have sex with her, even though he doesn't love her. And every time they have sex, sex and shame get more and more intertwined. And then as happens when people copulate, I should know, Leah starts having children, right? <laughs> so she has one child after the next, after the next. And do you know what she says every time she has a child? She says, now, now maybe my husband will love me. Leah knows she can't depend on her husband, Jacob, but she's still needy. And we see this neediness in the name she gives her children. Her firstborn, she names Reuben. Reuben means I'm seen. Second child, she names Simeon. Simeon means I'm heard. Her third child, she names Levi. Levi means I'm attached. And every time she says, maybe now he'll see me He'll hear me. He'll attach himself to me. And every time Jacob loved Rachel more, Leah was devastated again and again and again. But Leah stayed. Then she gets pregnant with the fourth child, fourth and final child. And instead of saying, now maybe my husband will love me, she turns her gaze away from her husband's face to her God's face. And she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And she names her fourth son, Judah. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. That's Micah 5.2. Do you see what happened? God chose Leah to be one of the grandmothers of Jesus. Judah, Leah's son, was the seed. And more than that, Leah became the seed. Leah was the outsider. Leah was the one who was rejected. Leah was the ugly one. Leah was the one who was always picked last, but she became the chosen one of God. God loves those who others don't love. God is attracted to ones that no one else wants. Do you see the humility of the God of the scriptures? When God sees this woman, this wife, who is not loved, he shows her that there is something so much more going on in her marriage. He shows her that he himself is the spouse she's been looking for all her life. And speaking of hellish marriages, we are the spouses from hell. 
God is the longest lived, is in the longest lived worst nightmare of a marriage in the history of the world. And in fact, just as Leah was thrown into hell when she married Jacob, Jesus marched into hell to marry us. In marriage, we see we were made for this, that we were made for him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that Jesus is a good husband, that Jesus is a one who loves the unlovely, loves the ones who are unwanted and ugly. And so, Father, I pray as, as we think about marriage, wherever we find ourselves, whether we're married or not, whether we want to be married or not, that there would be something we would see in your picture of marriage that would show us your heart and that we would respond to that heart. And Father, I don't know what's going on with everyone. You do. You know the marriages that are falling apart right now. You know the shame that people are feeling. You know the abuse that has been in the past. You know the places where, where we just think there's no way we will ever be loved. Father, you can speak love into those dark, deep, painful places. So Father, I pray that you would do that. And Father, I pray that you would make us a community that so reflects Jesus that we become people known for loving those that, that normally aren't loved. And Father, I pray that, that we would also become a people that when we feel unloved, we know we have a place in your community, in your church, that you have chosen us, that you have set us apart to be a light to those on the outside, to those who don't know they can be loved. So, Father, do whatever you have to do in our hearts to, to move us into deeper relationships, relationships that point to the reality that our true spouse is you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.